Kia ora everyone. This is New Zealand Medical Students Association focused podcast. My name is Ben Hodson and I'm a Dunedin rep on NZMSA. June this year has been our Gender and Medicine Focus Month as we have taken a look at gender discrimination and questioned the current cultural climate of medicine. In our final episode, we are delighted to welcome Angela Ballantyne and Sarah Rennie, who sat down with Michaela Mullen, a Wellington rep on NZMSA to discuss their own experiences with gender in medicine, but also discuss the culture of gender within medicine and broader society. Kia ora koutou everyone and welcome to the NCMSA's Gender in Medicine podcast series. Firstly, I'd like to thank um, the fabulous speakers that we are fortunate to have along today to speak with us. So with us today we have Angela Ballantyne and Sarah Rennie. And to begin, I thought I would hand over to them and get them to introduce themselves and their journey so far. So, hi everybody, I'm Angela Ballantyne. I teach the wonderful medical students here at the University of Otago in Wellington. And so my background is in bioethics. My undergrad degree was in genetics, and then all my postgrad work was in bioethics. And I ended up looking at gender and medicine specifically in about 2015, essentially in response to two things. One was the big scandal around sexual harassment and surgery in Victoria in Australia. And at the same time, I was noticing some patterns of speech dominance in the class that we had. So that sort of got me on the track of looking at issues around sexism and power and gender in medicine. Uh, I'm Sarah Rennie. I'm actually a general surgeon. Um, so very well versed with what Angela's been talking about in terms of the, the scandal that played out within our college uh, regarding sexual harassment. I also work as the Clinical Skills Director for the University of Otago, Wellington and have a strong interest in surgical education. I've had a very protracted uh, surgical career through surgical training and only recently qualified, um, so I have very good insight into the potential barriers that women face and the type of gender issues that we confront every day. So I think to start with, maybe just broadly, we could get a bit of an understanding of how gender has played a role in your careers so far. So I do a lot of talks about you know gender and... Uh, unconscious bias and part of what's really fascinating for me is the way the themes play out in similar ways across different disciplines so I work with lawyers as well as in medicine and as well as in the public sector and also some of the nuances and the differences so from my personal experience it's going to be more talking about gender and philosophy I suppose as opposed to medicine so the first thing I'd say is there's often a distinction between our subjective experience and what the data might say. So uh, if I look at the data, I'm really convinced that gender has obviously been a factor in my career because none of us are sort of immune to that. But when I subjectively think about my career, it's hard to see ways in which gender has been a really overt influencer. And so that's one of the reasons why I think sometimes we need to be a bit sceptical of our own subjective experience. Um, the only thing that I could really say has been a barrier is certainly the process of being interrupted when you're speaking. You know, that that's an issue. Uh, lack of numerous female role models in senior positions in philosophy is sometimes an issue. Although I eventually found the Feminist Bioethics Network and that was full of amazing, you know, uh, wonderful female philosophers. So that was really helpful. And certainly the dominance of speakers at sessions. And not just the speakers, but the people who ask questions. So that's been the really overt stuff. But in terms of my own career progression, I have been offered lots of opportunities by um, you know, men and women, and often more by men because there's more men in leadership positions. So they're the ones that have reached out and really given me a helping hand often. So I can't 
it's not like I can point to lots of points in my career where I thought, oh, my gender really held me back. But the other point I would make in relation to that is that privilege is really multifaceted. So gender is only one element of privilege. And there's lots of, I mean, overall, I would say my privilege package is really high, right? Because I'm white, I'm tall, um, and I'm, you know, reasonably confident in terms of public speaking. So gender is only one element of that, I'd say. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting, Mm. Angela. And I would concur about the subjective opinion and and perspective of where you're at. Mm. Um, It was quite interesting just the other week. I was at a session where we're trying to prepare a new module for surgical educators. Mm. And one of the the, um, scenarios that actually some men put forward uh, was over a male trainee sexually harassing females and my opinion of that was, well, actually, you know, compared to what I've experienced, that's actually really not that bad. Whereas their perception was, this is really bad, this is sexual harassment, we should be referring this person to HR. And just seeing that dichotomy... <laughs> that's fascinating. ...is really fascinating. And it made me realise that actually throughout my career, a lot of what I've experienced, I've been made to normalise mm-hmm. and think, oh, that's okay. And I need to accept that because I'm a woman in medicine. Actually thinking more objectively about the experience I've had, I would say that gender has been quite influential in my journey and the experiences I've had. Unlike Angela, I'm a short white female. (laughs) Height matters. And I think height does make a huge difference. I'm quite often not taken for being a female doctor. Uh, Quite often patients have, you know, I've introduced myself as a doctor, go through a whole consultation with them, um, explain even surgeries to them, and then they will ask when they're getting to see the doctor. And I think that's pretty common for a lot of women in medicine. I think the classic example of this Angela's heard before was uh, a patient when I was a surgical registrar. I was quite experienced and I was left at the weekend uh, by the consultant to do a baloney amputation on a gentleman. Throughout this gentleman's stay, I'd introduce myself every day as the doctor uh, that was looking after him on the ward. I'd consented him, explaining I was the doctor and that I would be doing his surgery. And at post-op care, I provided that for him. And he went home and then he came back several weeks later, having fallen. And the person admitting him said, so who did your amputation? And he responded, oh, Mr. So-and-so's nurse. <laughs> and I think that just gives a, a bit of an idea of, of what we're up against. In terms of where I'm at, what, what have I experienced so far? As a medical student, um, I was pulled onto a surgeon's knee. I guess sexually harassed because he did grope me effectively. I wasn't scrubbed and he wanted me to look down a microscope and that felt really uncomfortable. I said nothing. Um, And there's been various sort of things like that throughout my career which would be regarded as sexual Mm. harassment where you normalise it or if you do actually get the courage to raise it. Um, For example, another male um, registrar asking me about over over the patient in terms of surgery, asking me about when I lost my virginity and things like that. Um, And when I raised that, I was uncomfortable with that with a senior being told, well, it's my opportunity to educate him. I do put myself in a completely interesting demographic as well because I um, actually have a female partner and I have five children, which usually confounds people because they assume that my partner's male because I have children. Um, So there's a lot of assumptions that are made as you go through training Mm. and working. 
And the balance, no, I'm just going to jump in yeah, and ask a question. Um, <laughs> I mean, the balance of raising five kids and doing surgery as well is pretty unusual, right? Um, yeah, I think especially being a trainee mm-hmm. um, at that level and stage. Mm-hmm. Interesting, as a trainee, I would quite often, yeah, very well supported by my partner, but sometimes she would be away at conferences and things like that, in which case I'd be getting up, feeding five children, making sure they've got everything ready for school, uh, leaving my eldest daughter to drop them at school because luckily she had a driver's licence, making sure food was in a crock pot for us getting home in the evening. I'd arrive at work pretty much having done a full day's work, (laughs) hung the washing out, etc., and be confronted by my colleague who was a white male and the consultant would bring him dinner because his wife felt really sorry for him being on his own. Um, and having to go out for takeout every night, which he could well afford. Yeah. I'm thinking, actually, it'd be really nice if somebody made us dinner. Yeah. <laughs> that would be lovely. Yeah. So thank you for sharing some of those experiences and thoughts about how perceptions can be different depending on our objective and subjective experiences. Mm. I think on from that, just wondering about how gender may have helped in your careers. Well, I mean, I think networking's hugely important and I don't know to what degree this is for everybody but certainly it's been a major element of the success and the opportunities that I've had in my career Mm. Um, and you know a lot of the social science research will suggest that women are good at forming and nurturing social relationships and so that and I mean now I certainly you know don't class myself as being super smart I would never have gotten into medicine for example I did not have those grades but I you know I'm good at forming relationships and connecting with people, and I've done lots of travel. And so that's been a major advantage, um, mm. yeah, for my work. Mm, I, I agree with that. I think women have a tendency to kind of friend and tend people. Yeah. And I've certainly experienced that throughout my career, the support that women can potentially give other women as they go through and the sense of community you can get is actually really important. Mm -hmm. I think as a woman in medicine as well, there's lots of evidence to suggest that we're actually pretty darn good at what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly within surgery, recently there's been publications which show that actually women have better outcomes for their patients Mm -hmm. uh, than men do. Uh, And I think that is partly due to our ability to really make connections with patients. And I think being a woman... And the experiences I've had make me a much better doctor and surgeon than potentially if I didn't have you know five kids and hadn't yeah. had the experiences I've had going through. It gives me the ability to really connect with my patients, and I wouldn't actually change that for the world. I think that's really important in terms of helping them heal, mm. uh, being able to see them as a real human being with needs, uh, and being able to cherish them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm. hugely valuable. Mm. Okay, and so just shifting tact a little bit now, just looking at over time, if you have seen or have any examples of where there may have been a shift, if or if there hasn't been a shift in the culture and attitudes towards women and um, medicine, and I guess outside of medicine as well, compared to when you first sort of entered your careers. Well, I mean, so I started sort of looking at unconscious bias in 2015, so that's, what, four years ago now. 
I think, I mean, I think Me Too has been a shift. I think mm-hmm. it's been a shift in terms of people's general awareness and just kind of creating a platform and a common dialogue around that. And it has shone a light on a lot of experiences that women either were sort of subjectively denying and normalising themselves or they felt isolated about. So they felt like this is something that's weird that's happened to me rather than this is like actually a common systemic pattern of behaviour in relation to men in powerful positions, for example. And not just men, but often men. So I think, you know, when I started teaching this in 2015, 2016, I felt like a lot of the information was very new to students. And by the sort of 17, 18, I felt like there was a lot more nodding in the class um, and the students were sort of well prepped to engage in this dialogue. Mm. So that's been quite cool. I, you know, one of the things that (laughs) I often get asked and I suppose I feel a little bit anxious about is this question of pipelines. So people will say, you know, something like Me Too. And Me Too's been amazing and, you know, it's changed the discourse and the landscape. And so now we just sort of have to, um, you know, wait for the pipeline to process all these amazing women and they will get into positions of leadership. So I always am very conscious that I think we need to kind of keep momentum up and keep pushing uh, because I don't think any any individual kind of cultural shift in and of itself is going to level the playing field. Mm-hmm. So I think while there has been changes that's not enough to kind of make us sit back on our laurels and yeah yeah I'd agree with that very much so I think for me one thing that's really important as well is not focusing too much on issues for women Mm -hmm. yes there are issues for women but actually you know my need to be able to go home and spend time with my children shouldn't be any less than actually my colleague who is male who has children they still need to spend time and build a relationship with their children Mm. Um, what I would like to see Mm. is a much more level playing field on all levels Mm because I think sometimes men have it really tough and with the Me Too movement that has been great but we're in danger of actually silencing the voices of men as well because this Mm. is not meant to be just about women Mm. and the same with the I look like a surgeon that's meant to be you know men with children it's meant to be people who are are of different ethnic uh, minorities um, or different sexual orientations, and it's really how we lift everybody up mm. um, and try and get an even playing field for everybody rather than just for women. Um, so that that's my main desire within that area. One thing that I think has been really, really valuable as well has been the He For She movement. Mm-hmm. And I think as women, we really need, and I certainly value men amplifying our voices and creating opportunities and we've talked a little bit about the manuals, so yeah. <laughs> um, like the surgical conference within New Zealand two years ago, all the invited speakers were male. Uh, one was non-white, and that was it. And I think actually getting to a point where men stand up and say, well, hang on a minute, I'm not prepared to sit on this panel because it's all men. Where are the women in this? It's probably more beneficial than women squeaking lots Uh, and we we need to tackle this all together so Mm. that everybody gets a chance at an even playing field Mm. and there's lots of literature that shows as well that um you know if you're not the target group you can call out bias behavior with relative immunity so a recent um study of speakers on the race circuit in the u.s suggested that most of the black speakers or speakers Mm. of color on that circuit regularly got death threats and all of the white speakers on that circuit didn't, and we're like really surprised that that was a consequence, right? So mm-hmm. we can, you know, if you're white, you can speak about racism with relative impunity. Um, and if you're male, you can talk about sexism with a lot more impunity than 
than women can. So I think there's a, you know, I love your point about allies. And I think um, in, all, in all aspects of privilege, we can be allies to other groups. So, you know, there are consequences for women who are the squeaky wheel about issues around gender. And, you know, mm -hmm. we need to kind of acknowledge that. But women can call out, you know, uh, behaviour that's discriminatory towards, you know, the LGBTQA community if you're heterosexual. Or as a white person, I can call out racist behaviour and men can call out sexist behaviour. And if we can all back each other, that makes a huge difference. Mm, yeah, all coming together to try and address some of the issues that we have. Absolutely. Sort of globally yeah. and throughout society. Mm. I think mm. it's much greater strength in us all standing together and rather than causing divisions mm -hmm. um, and trying to isolate one group mm -hmm. and seeing them as a special case. Everybody mm. should stand together, whether it's Maori, Pacific Islanders, trying mm. to increase their um, contribution within medicine. I think that's vitally important. That diversity. Yeah. I think, it's, I think it's tricky sometimes how you do it as well, though. So men will often say to me, well, how do I call out you know, sexist behaviour. Um, and I think it's really important not to step in and try and speak for someone else because that doesn't help. So what you need to be doing is amplifying, as you said, the opportunity for others' voices to be heard. So you can say, I'm not going to speak on this panel because I don't think it's sufficiently diverse. Or if you're in a meeting and someone gets spoken over rather than saying, oh, well, what I think Sarah meant to say was, you know, you can say, oh, hang on just a minute. I hadn't um, heard what Sarah wanted to say, you know, and I wanted to hear more about that. So can we go back to that point? So it's really about like creating space for that voice rather than trying to take over mm. the discussion. And so my next question, we sort of touched on a few of these points in different ways already. But so we sort of are at a point where we acknowledge that women make up the majority of the health um, workforce, but we know that they have less representation in leadership roles and then we're losing more women um, out of medicine and sort of the health workforce sort of than in other groups and just wondering what barriers do you think exist in uh, contributing to this i'm just thinking very carefully about how to shorten this answer because um you know part of what's fascinating about this is just you know how complex the process is so yeah. let me see if i can just name a few things there so one i mean we see the big split around the 30s so women and men track reasonably equally up until their 30s and then we be, see a big split in terms of people leaving the profession and also pay and also access to leadership positions so that obviously correlates with women um, their reproductive period and taking time out to have children women biologically have to have children but it's not set in stone that women have to be the primary caregivers and i absolutely agree that both for the health of men and the health of women we want much more equal division of caring responsibilities in the home i think the other thing is that obviously you know, in a really competitive field once you've taken a few steps on the leadership track, you know, if, if your female colleagues are out of the workforce, even for a few years, it can be quite hard to catch up. And that success amplifies. So you see that big split in the in people's you know, during the 30s. The other thing that happens, and this is particularly for dual, highly educated, high income couples, and often you'll have two doctors married to each other. So financially, if you work over 60 hours a week, and this is data from the US, so I'm not sure exactly you know, how comparable it is to New Zealand, but essentially if you work over 50 to 60 hours per week, you get a massive increase in your income. So if you've got two you know, highly educated members of that couple, it doesn't financially make sense for them both to work 40 hours. It makes much more sense for one to work 60 hours and one to work 20 hours. And this is why whether you're looking at kind of law or banking or finance or medicine, you often see the split where one person takes a backseat on their career and maintaining two successful careers is 
very challenging. And it simply doesn't make financial sense, right, to have those careers have equal time and space. Now, it makes a lot of sense in terms of people's, you know, enjoyment of life uh, and other well-being stats. But that's a big driver. Um, one of the other drivers is obviously just unconscious bias around leadership. So, you know, one of the things I say is that, you know, when my daughter grows up and looks out at the world and sees that 95% of world leaders are male and 95% of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are male, you know, her brain, and, you know, many other examples, her brain starts to associate the idea of leadership with maleness. And in any hiring process, if we allow our kind of fast thinking, our intuitive thinking to take over, we see examples of male leadership much, much more clearly. And so this happens across the board. I mean, if you give um, two identical CVs with a male and female name on it, people want to appoint the male candidate. If you say to medical students, um, here's two identical you know, uh, profiles, one male, one female, who do you want to be your mentor? They prefer the male. If you give abstracts to students, identical abstracts, and say, which of these abstracts do you think is you know, more compelling? Um, whose lab would you want to work in? I mean, again, it's just male, male, male. So we need to put, in order to redress that, put in um, kind of slow thinking, systematic mechanisms in our hiring process to really actively try and get women into those positions. So that's one big believer of targets and quotas. Um, and there's a whole range of things, you know, we can talk about. I have to stop talking now. But, you know, in terms mm. of what those strategies might be. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think um, what Andrew said is, is really important. There was a, a great presentation at our recent conference in Bangkok, the Surgeons Conference, uh, where somebody actually looked over the last six years at how people were represented, male, female, in terms of invited speakers, um, etc. And then they had the abstracts at the bottom. And um, what they found was that there was much lower rates of women who were invited speakers or chair people or on panels. Um, and they were all people that were selected mm-hmm. compared to the open abstracts, which are all blinded, mm-hmm. where there was greater women that were actually represented in that area. And I thought that was fascinating mm-hmm. how we actually blind that mm-hmm. or try and amplify and encourage women to be in positions of, it, of being an invited speaker because quite clearly they're pretty good at what they do. Mm-hmm. I think the issue of taking time is actually really important. So my own journey kind of shows that we don't yet have a global medical community. So I started, I trained in the UK. Um, I started surgical training in the UK. I set exams from there and then I came over to New Zealand and did a PhD and raised our five children to a point where they were all at school level. Um, I then went to get back onto surgical training, assuming naively that you know, the world would have righted itself and the inequality <laughs> between men and women would have been sorted in the time I was out, only to discover that actually a beautiful letter that said I didn't have the required experience to apply to the surgical training scheme um, because I hadn't actually worked full-time in the last two years. So I then worked for a year to gain the required experience topped the ranking in New Zealand the following year to get onto surgical training. Um, had to reset the exams I'd already sat 10 years earlier, reset them. And so it's taken me pretty much 20 years to get through my training, uh, even though I'm actually fairly good at what I do and fairly competent and have demonstrated that. So at the moment, while we have time-based courses, that's detrimental to women. And I think we need to think carefully about flexible training for men and women and what that means. Mm -hmm. Because often 
the experience and the competence that we gain over that time that's either counted in training or counted not as in training, but then you get on to training, that experience really isn't given the due credit that it should be uh, and makes it more difficult for people to take time out. Also looking specifically at surgery, if people take time out to do part-time training, they actually have to pay quite a lot to be on deferral. So if you part-time train to have children or take time out to have children, then that's kind of a negative in a way. And any men looking at that... So you pay more overall. You effectively pay more overall, Mm. yeah. Um, Because you have to pay to maintain your space within the training system. So say the training fees are $5,000 for the year, you pay $2,000 to maintain your training position for that Even year. though you're not accessing it. Even though you're not actively training. And right. okay. um, so that, that automatically puts men off. Why would they potentially do part-time training or defer if they're going to have to pay a lot of money to do that? Mm-hmm. So I think that is detrimental. I think quite often as well, people don't offer women opportunities because they think, oh, actually, you know, she's got kids at home, so she might be really good at having this leadership opportunity but she probably won't want to take it up so let's not actually offer it to her and I think we need to accept that people are grown-ups and they can make decisions about how their family's going to run and who's going to look after children so let's let's provide them with the opportunities and see whether they run with them or not but often if you don't get asked you you don't you're not even in the race you can't take that position what do you think about um, the idea that women don't lean in enough and don't put up their hands enough? So when there's kind of an open call, they mm. don't put themselves forward. I, I think to a certain extent that's probably true. And it's quite interesting having gone through and watched other registrars and you know, the male registrars will put themselves forward even though they're not quite competent yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been in positions where uh, a male registrar will say, yep, I can do that operation. And then they'll give me a ring. Hey, can you come in and give me a hand? Um, and I'll nip in and give them a hand. Whereas if I was asked the same thing, I'd be thinking about all the things that potentially could go wrong. And yeah, I'm probably competent if it's straightforward, but you know, worst case scenario, maybe not. So, so you'd be maybe more conservative. Would, yeah, so I right. tend to be more conservative in terms mm-hmm. of putting myself forward for something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of evidence to show that, that men will put themselves forward for a position or a job or for a task when they're about 60% ready, whereas women need to be about 150 to 200% confident mm-hmm. that they can actually achieve that task. Yeah. Um, and that knowing that's really useful because it means I can say to the female registrars coming through, just take a chance, say yes, because actually within medicine we will back each other up and mm-hmm. somebody will be there if you need them. Mm-hmm. But try it, mm-hmm. actually give it a go. I think imposter syndrome is alive and well. And it inhibits us a lot from achieving our potential mm-hmm. and putting our hand into the ring. Yeah. I was thinking about this the other day, a colleague of mine was, um, and I won't name the person because I haven't got permission, but talking about a you know professor in the UK and an anecdote that she tells about being called by the BBC all the time to give interviews and saying often, which is often what I say, well, I'm not really an expert in that and I no, don't necessarily feel qualified to speak on that. And one of the journalists eventually rang her back and said, for goodness sake, when you say that, you know, we have to call the next person on the list who is inevitably male, who inevitably knows less than you and that's why they're second on the list and who always says yes. So could you actually just please say yes, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's interesting to reflect on your own experience. When I was, so I can see, you know, when I see that in someone else's experience, mm. oh, that's, you know, mm. quite obvious. Um but then when I think back, I, so I was approached um, and asked to stand for president of the International Association of Bioethics. 
and said, oh no, that's ridiculous. Uh, and then, you know, another colleague came forward and said, oh, have you, you know, he said, no, we really think he'd be really good. We really think he should stand. And I said, you know, no, that would actually, you know, be bordering on embarrassing, you know, because mm. I'm so junior and have so little experience and, and had to be asked three times before I would, you know, put my yeah. hat in the ring for that, um, which seems to me perfectly conservative and rational. And I still mm. think it was a, you know, quite an unusual decision to even say yes. So I can see it in other people's behaviour much more obviously than I can see it in my own. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably the biggest thing I've learned with time. You know, mm. even will you take part in this podcast, my mm. initial reaction is, hell no. <laughs> Why me? Yeah. There's so many other people that would be better qualified to do this. Yeah. And then it's actually, actually no, you, you, you need yeah. to be saying yes to these kind of opportunities um, and realising you do have something to say. Yeah. And I think trusting other people, trusting that, you know, other people wouldn't have asked if they mm. didn't see something. And, and part of that involves sort of letting go of your own subjective experience and kind of trusting the process a bit more. Yeah, because I think, you know, we can hold ourselves back sometimes. Yeah. It was quite interesting, just an email trail um, at the last conference. I was asked to stand in for a male speaker for an invited presentation he'd been asked to do. And the email trail kind of went like, would you be willing to do this? Are you going to the conference? And me kind of thinking again, oh no, I, I, I can't step into this person's shoes. This is somebody with huge mana. And then me um, sending back to him, look, thank you very much for the opportunity to do this. And actually the email response I got from him was, thank you for letting me give you this opportunity. And that was just really nice because I hadn't really thought about it that way. Yeah, 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 I like that. Mm, yeah, um, really interesting points. Just thinking about how we could also, areas that you've thought about maybe or where we could do sort of better, again, just if there's anything else along those lines. I know we've, you've mentioned a few points where we could do better, but anything else? Um, so, I mean, if I had one wish in the world, it would be better, well, actually it would be climate change, but... In this context, um, it would be better paternity leave provisions for men because I think we need to get men in the home when babies are born. And so, um, you know, Sweden has an interesting model where they provide financial incentives to actually get the male partner into the house at that period. And I think a lot flows from that. I mean, a couple of things. One is I think it's great for balance in men's lives to take on caregiving roles. And I think the way we construct masculinity at the moment really actually denies them those opportunities. And that's really... I mean, it's a big issue and something we should be talking about as well. Also, unconscious bias in, in the next generation of children's expectations around what normal male and female behaviour are start in the home. And so it's really critical that we have reasonable balance there. Also, I would say that from my perspective, and I've just that last example I gave you, I actually have a huge number of opportunities on my desk in my professional capacity, more than I can say yes to. Often thanks to you, Sarah, for telling people to invite me to things. And so the limiting factor isn't a lack of opportunities, it's the amount of physical, cognitive and emotional energy I have when I get through the door. And so, so much of that depends on what is actually happening, you know, in the home in terms of the distribution of labour there. So getting men in the home is one thing. Um, I also think it's, we've become aware, I think, of um, a lot of some of the biases and how they play out. And so blind review of abstracts, for example, is one way of saying, um, you know, we're familiar with this. 
but it's this really fascinating stuff is when you dig a little bit deeper. So one of the examples I talked about at um, the surgeons conference was uh, letters of reference for male and female applicants. So even if you blind a review process, there's these really subtle differences, well, not so subtle differences that come through. So in transplant surgery, and this is a study just published in 2019, found that um, letters written in support of male applicants were more likely to include terms like superb, intelligent, exceptional, and future leader. And for female applicants, more likely to use communal terms like compassionate, calm, and delightful. So even the level of training people who are writing references and making this kind of data known, so the people who are writing references, you know, this is just one example, can be more thoughtful about the language they're using. So I think we kind of need to take that discussion of bias right down to the next level and really be looking at those really small ways in which um, we can be biased. Yeah, I think being more aware mm. of our own biases, because we're all biased. Yeah. And I have as many biases against women as the men do. Mm-hmm. And they're usually formed from the same influences and upbringings that the men have. Mm-hmm. I think becoming more aware of those is just really important. And starting having the conversation and not being afraid to say, hang on a minute, where are are we doing it like this? What's the rationale behind this? Mm -hmm. And calling each other out. Um, I think amplifying each other is really important, and we can do that from men and women, Mm -hmm. ethnic minorities, and we need to do that. So if you see somebody's good somewhere, then you need to amplify them and make sure that people actually think about them as an individual they could have on board, giving talks, getting involved in things, mm-hmm. definitely. And I totally agree with Angela's point of, of getting more men in the home, and I think that is becoming more of a reality. And I'm really proud that to a fairly sort of junior surgeons, um, sort of recent surgeons, they, they do, they have time off, and they spend time at home with their children. Mm-hmm. Uh, making sure that they're part of and a really important part of their upbringing and that's what they do in their time mm-hmm. and it's not what was the norm and I think it needs to become the norm I think we've still got a reasonable way to go oh yeah on that yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. we're getting there I, th- I think we are I think we're making what I think is we're making more progress maybe around that birth period mm-hmm. but I think the sort of picking kids up after school you know if I go to my kids school it's um, probably still 90, 95%, you know, mums or female nannies that are doing the school pickup, right? Mm-hmm. So that sort of day-to-day involvement in life um, yeah. in the kids' life, I think, is a, yeah, something to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So we've made some small improvements in particular areas, but we've still got some some way to go in different paths. Well, I wouldn't even say they're small. I think they're great, you yeah. know? They're like big improvements and they're good and it's the right direction, but we just need to keep our foot on the pedal yeah yeah and keep advocating for that because yeah. change doesn't happen by itself yeah keep and that keep, momentum going keep talking about it yeah and making it acceptable for people to talk about it yeah and acceptable to say actually i'm not going to be i'm not available for this meeting because i've got childcare arrangements yeah. not because i've got some other meeting i'm not going to tell you about and i'm going to pretend that i'm at work yeah. you know doing something yeah okay excellent all right so then just thinking about gender um and sort of with increasing awareness of the diversity that we have in gender and how there's a lot of expression of different gender identities than the normal sort of cis male and cis female. How do you think that the workforce has responded to this sort of inside of medicine and outside of medicine and just generally as well? 
I think it's really interesting and again comes to do with it being acceptable to talk about and increasing people's understanding. I've certainly got very frustrated when I've had patients who identify as female but are biologically male and um, other doctors insist on referring them to, as, to them as a male, um, which to my mind is completely indefensible mm. and inappropriate because that person quite clearly identifies as female. So I, I think it just goes back to what we've been talking about, which is greater awareness and understanding of these issues. And without educating people, people do make assumptions. Mm-hmm. It's like people always assume that I'm a heterosexual female um, and have a male partner. I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, you know, I don't have a huge amount of, here yeah. I am doing the female qualifier coming. Um, I don't have a huge amount of expertise in this area, <laughs> just to caveat that. Uh, so I think treatment of transgender has really shifted in terms of the agenda. Um, and we're seeing that in terms of increasing requests for surgery and transition uh, and a big demand in terms of available resources and expertise. So that's interesting. And clearly, I think, suggests that we have, as you say, opened up a cultural space where it's safe to ask for that. So that's mm-hmm. really interesting. I think on the issue of, you know, the question of like, oh, we need to have the, we need to have the dialogue about it. Um, one counter to that is the work of, really fantastic work, if you want to look at it, of Alice Drager, who no longer calls herself, well, in some work has denied the term bioethicist um, in favour of the term activist and has argued that bioethicists are part of the problem because we just defend the medical establishment, you know, and we're not activist enough. But she, for a long time, was on the circuit talking about the rights of intersex families to the medical community and, you know, asking people to be more thoughtful about what is essentially cosmetic genital surgery. And she eventually got very frustrated because she felt like that the talking was just tokenism and it was, an, it was a way of allowing... Um, the medical community to resist change in their practice because they were demonstrating that they were being open and they were having this dialogue, right, but mm-hmm. nothing was changed. So that's my point about the foot on the pedal again, right? You know, yeah. talking is the first step, but, um, you know, the cultural change happens through change in actions and change in policies. Well, that sort of comes to the end of all the questions that I've prepared, and I'd like to thank you both for contributing your thoughts and giving us some really valuable um, points to consider and to think about further. I just thought I'd give you the opportunity if there's any sort of closing remarks or additional things that you'd like to share. Well, I suppose my main philosophy in life, you know, is that everybody's born with some special light and something special they can offer to the world. And all of these biases around, you know, race and gender and sexuality essentially just function as cages that stop us being able to do some things that we want to do. And that's the truth. It's the truth for men and women. Um, and so, you know, part of this challenge is trying to break down those cages so that we can live lives that are more authentic to who we really are. And it's just, you know, good on the medical students for making space for the conversation. So thank you mm-hmm. for that. Yeah, for the invitation. Absolutely. And I think it's just really important not to make assumptions. Mm-hmm. Whenever you meet someone, greet someone, allow them to express who they are. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you both for coming along and joining us. And thank you to everyone who has listened. And if you've got any comments, post them below and we'll see if we can get you in touch with anyone who can answer them.